How could you turn your passion for creative writing into providing an income? Also, how difficult is it to make that leap from full-time employment to doing it as a profession? We'll hear of a great example of this today. Welcome to Half Hour Mentor. My name is Ian Cleverdon and welcome to the audio podcast series designed to help anyone who's looking for inspiration to develop their creative skills, whether that's professionally or as a hobbyist. Just like series two, this one focuses on various aspects of the creative arts. I shall be interviewing musicians, songwriters, authors and actors, but also speaking to some in the directing and strategic management fields of this wide ranging industry. All of my guests have been carefully chosen, as each one of them has an interesting backstory from which we can all learn. If you're new to the series, please follow it on whichever streaming platform you use, and go back to have a listen to the rich archive of around 30 interviews and compilations. This episode is a first in the history of the podcast series, as it's the first of two parts. My guest today is best-selling author and scriptwriter Paul Finch. I'm a fan of Paul's books, as you'll hear, and when I sat down with him to talk about his career to date and how he got into writing, his advice and his backstory was so interesting, I decided halfway through recording our chat that this would need to be a two-parter. Paul is an ex-policeman and journalist turned best-selling author. He first cut his literary teeth penning episodes of the TV series The Bill and has written extensively for horror and fantasy, including for Doctor Who. He's also known for his crime novels, or urban thrillers as he likes them to be known, of which there are 12 to date, including the Heckenberg and the Claiborne series. Most recently, he's released a historical novel, Usurper, based in England around 1066. I met with him at his home in Lancashire, England, to talk about his extensive and varied career. In this first of two parts, we talk about his journey from working for Greater Manchester Police to becoming a full-time professional writer, and the huge influence his father, Brian, had on his creative writing skills. This series is completely independent and ad-free, so if you like what you hear and you'd like to help support the production costs, especially the studio coffee supply, please feel free to donate what you can via the Corona Sound website. A link can be found in the show notes. Let's hear from Paul. Paul Finch, welcome to Half Hour Mentor. Thanks, Ian. Go back to your teenage years. What did you want to do as a job or a career? I wanted to be a copper. Right. Well, I mean, when I was before I was a teenager, I wanted to be an archaeologist. I know what a strange thing for a, a pre-teen person to want to do, but um, why was that? Uh, I was fascinated by dinosaurs, and I thought that um, it would be great fun digging up dinosaur bones. <laughs> As I grew older, and uh, I don't know why things changed, I just became fascinated by the idea of the police officer. That stuck with me into my adult years because that's what I became. Right. That was my first job. What specifically was it that made you think you wanted to join the police? Well, it wasn't that I had an officious streak. Um, That was what one of my uncles said. Well, I never knew you had an officious streak. I don't know, I was just quite in... I think, to be honest with you, there was a bit of a... Um, I, I probably had a bit of a romantic idea of what being a copper was. I saw, I, I, you know, to me, it wasn't... As a young, naive person, it wasn't going to be about walking the beat and, and you know, mm. um, having a word with, in people's ear, which is what the reality of policing is or should be. It was about being, you know, a detective and driving around and investigating murders and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, probably a very naive viewpoint. I certainly never sat there and thought, wow, I can't wait to do all that paperwork. 
Um, which you soon found out. Which I soon which found out was exactly what most of it was. Um, but but once you set on a course, you know, you set on a course, and the idea... I mean, I wouldn't say I was from, you know, from the age of 14, absolutely bent on becoming a copper. Hmm. But it was always there. It was always something I was quite interested in. I mean, I probably I probably dabbled with all kinds of ideas about what I wanted to be. But uh, that was the thing that was still there when I finished my education. So that's what I went for. Did you go straight into the police? Yeah. I didn't do... I mean, apart from summer jobs, mm. I didn't do any... That was my first actual job um, as an adult. And, uh, you know, it was a strange introduction to the working world. It was very different from anything I expected. So... Tell us about that then. What what were your experiences? Where were you based? I was based in Salford. Uh, I was in Greater Manchester Police. I was based in Salford. Now I should make this clear from the beginning. I wasn't a career copper. I'm now old enough to have done thirty years and retired. I I didn't. I only did a few years. Mm. Um, I did a wide range of different of duties. You know, from uniform to plain clothes, detective work to walking the beat, traffic, all these kinds of things. You know, you never know what's going to happen day to day in mm. the police. Um, so you have to be a bit of a jack of all trades. Mm. That side of it was very exciting. The downside, and this is where, this might be the segue we need into the writing game. I, I had a, sometimes it could be really, really depressing. One of the problems with any emergency services role is that you tend to be dealing every day with people who are having the worst day of their lives. Right. So... The stress just from interacting with people who are suffering can be high. Mm. Now, yes, doctors and nurses get it, firemen get it, ambulance drivers get it. Um, it's not by any means unique to the police, but you you go from one situation to another wherein people are very highly stressed, very upset. Sometimes they're sort of mortally upset. Mm. Um, you know, they might be bereaved or whatever. And you're you, still a first responder, though, you're aren't you? You're a first you? responder. You're, young coppers are first responders. So you're the first at a crime scene. Mm. You know, you might be the first at a murder scene. I was on a number of occasions. I mean, a child murder is a particularly difficult Gosh. thing to deal with. Uh, thankfully, I didn't have too many of those, but, you know, one is enough. Mm. Um, all these things are are there which can make your life very hard and and you don't complain because that's your job but i was all i was increasingly aware throughout my time in the police that my dad had been a writer four generations of television british television his career eventually spanned and um he did a lot of work at granada hmm. and i remember as a youngster going with him to granada to watching them filming episodes of coronation street being introduced to people like Ken Dodd and Frankie Howard right. and even Charlie Caroli. I don't know if you remember him. Yes, he was a comedian from way back. Um, used to have a sort of clown outfit on. Used to be at Blackpool. That's yeah. correct. Yeah. He did. Uh, it was at Blackpool Tower where I met him, actually. Uh, Blackpool Tower Circus. Oh, that must be about 1968, 69. Right. I was a kid then. Um, but we did a lot of... I, I met a lot of people and the, the sort of razzmatazz of that world. I mean, Granada was a real really productive independent television company. Mm. It was a, a terrible loss, really, when it disappeared. And it was a great place to visit. Uh, but I, I didn't have any... While I didn't have any ambitions to be part of that world, it certainly had an effect on me. And I, uh, while I was in the police, I, I was starting to develop an interest in actually writing stuff, in writing fiction. You know, it would, inevitably it was going to be cop fiction. Mm. 
I mean, I'd seen television shows like The Sweeney, mm. which were very different from previous shows like Dixon of Doc Green. I mean, The Sweeney was more about was more like an American style cop thriller, mm. which was much sexier to a young to an impressionable young fellow like me growing up in the north of England. Did you find that realistic? Obviously, just well, it point. was realistic in as much as it showed. Um, I mean, obviously, it's drama, it's mm. fiction, but so there are all kinds of things. Almost no police dramas are realistic because a lot of police work would be completely uh, you know mind-numbingly boring for an audience and it would also be you know the way the police speak to each other and um, particularly then mm. would be completely unacceptable for a non-police audience the Swedish was very realistic in it it showed a sort of I think that it was two hard-working detectives who got a lot of prisoners but were also drank a lot smoked a lot got into brawls, were behaved reprehensibly. And it, it didn't make any bones about that. It showed that this was uh, this was the effects of, of the job. It was really, really high-stress job. Um, so, yeah, that was realistic. Um, I mean, I, I mean, it wasn't... But it's not all car chases and pun shops. Yeah. Even then, it wasn't that, you know. There was a lot more of it then than there is now. But, yeah. but I'd start, I was starting to see the potential excitement uh, of police fiction, police drama. Mm. And I remember one night I was in a, I went to a terrible scene in a, which I won't go into, in a block of flats in a tower block in Salford. It was the most dispiriting day of my entire police service. And afterwards, when it was, um, when the world and his brother had arrived, too late, as we always were, mm. I remember going up onto the roof to get a breath of fresh air, and it was about two or three in the morning, and I gazed across the sort of cityscape of Manchester. It was completely dark and silent, apart from... This, this glimmering neon sign in the distance, Granada Television. Yeah. And it reminded me of everything. Of my former life when I used to go with my dad to watch them making his TV shows, which they now felt as if there was an abyss between me and that part of my life. Mm. That All of that, and I thought, I, wanna, I want that. I want to go back to that. Right. And maybe I can use this. But it didn't happen that way straight away. But that's the first time I said to myself... I'm going to leave the cops and I'm going to do something in the world of entertainment. And it was a ludicrous ambition because it, it was literally like there was a joke on Monty Python. He wanted to go from being an accountant to being a lion tamer. Yeah. And, and they said, well, it's a bit of a leap, isn't it? This was the same thing. Yeah. I mean, it was there was no bridge in that era. But I mean, there may have been for one or two, but you couldn't just walk from one to the other. So I, I didn't realise what a long path, I, a long and difficult path I had ahead of me. But that was the moment I decided that I'm not going to be in this job for the next 30 years. I want to do something else. Hmm. So you mentioned before you know, that your dad, Brian, is a scriptwriter, a very successful scriptwriter. You've grown up meeting these stars and so on. Yeah. Why was it that you still wanted to pursue the, the police? Why did the sort of the uh, media aspect not appeal to you? Or did you not think you need to go into that? Because it almost felt, you know, to an outsider well, and to a listener, I think, well, you've got it, it made. To it, go should have been, it should have been straightforward. Well, I mean, first of all, my dad was a, a freelance writer, so he couldn't give me a job. You know, if he'd been, I don't know, the head of, a, head of Granada, things might have been different, but he wasn't. He had to pitch for work just like I did. Just like I do now, and and I, and it, he would certainly have been influential, but it's a world where you can't just be there because of nepotism. You have to demonstrate talent. 
Now, I had already started to put... I, I always wrote stories when I was at school. I loved doing it, but I wrote what I wanted to write. And, um, you know, I didn't particularly stick to the brief. So, for example, once when we were children, we were, where I was at infant school, junior school, we went to a Poland college, which was the seminary at the time, to have a look around. I was at a Catholic school. And afterwards, we all had to write about our day at a Poland college. I decided it was boring, so I brought Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde into my story, which raised a couple of eyebrows with my teachers. Um, you know, I was always a little bit indisciplined. I wrote what I wanted to write. and uh, But, but I, I mean, that's a sort of humorous tale. It is true, but I, I had no real bearing on this. But what I'm, I'm, I mean, I... I probably wouldn't... See, my dad wrote for shows like, I mean, ironically, Zed Cars, which, of course, was a cop show. Yeah. Um, but in the early days, Coronation Street was his big one. He went on years later to do all kinds of things, all creatures great and small, Bergerac, and eventually won his um, BAFTA with Mr. Tom. Mm. Um, but... but was long, John Thor's John last Thor, yeah, appearance. Right? Yes, one of John's last things. Long before then... Um, I, I had, you know, I'd, I'd sort of got it off as all, got it down as all being a bit boring, mm. and uh, I wanted to do, I wanted to go out and be a copper and all this and do all the things I've outlined. So there must have been a latent interest though, because all of a sudden it suddenly, I suddenly became quite keen to be going to join my dad's world. Of course, I was still only in my twenties, so it ridiculous to think, oh, it's too late now. Though I did think that at the time. I thought, well, no, I've not really done any prep. I've not I've not trained for any of this. But I, I was starting to talk to my dad about it quite a lot. And one evening, I came off shift. It was the early 80s, or the mid-80s, and the bill had just started. Mm. The, the TV series, The Bill. Yeah, it was around about 83, 84. 80, yeah, yeah. it had been on a couple of years. Yeah. I was still living at home at the time. I only got married in 88, I came in and I sat and watched it with them and I very rarely did things like that because shift work, you know, you come in all kinds of strange hours. You very rarely sit, sat and had tea with your mum and dad. Yes, not a nine-to-five job no, at all. And no, not at all. When you're young, you do all sorts of overtime. So it's, you know, all kinds of strange hours you're coming and going. But I sat with them and, I, and my dad commented that this was quite a good new police series and that it prided itself on being very realistic. So I immediately said, "Well, that's not realistic, and that's not realistic, and that's not realistic, and that's <laughs> not realistic." Yeah, and and but of course, you know, the bill, like all cop shows, wanted to create an air of authenticity, but they knew they were very well aware that the real thing would have been boring. Mm. You know, we have loads of live action documentary fly on the wall cop things on telly now, but they're all edited down. Mm. You know, the, the the car chases are there, but the the bits when you're writing, you're writing it all up afterwards for three hours aren't. Yeah, to fifty in a. To yeah, fit it in a fifty-minute yeah, piece yeah. with advert uh, gaps, and, and so so. But my dad said to me, "Well, he challenged me. So, well, if you think you can do any better, why don't you have a go?" And so I thought about this, and I'd already had this this uh, you know this Damascene moment when I'd seen this distant neon sign of Granada, like my future beckoning to me. It's ironic, really, because I never actually wrote for Granada, is um, but. It was a symbol. It's a symbol of the, yeah, what uh, I wanted. The future. So when I, I wrote, so I wrote a few um, specimens, and I, I thought I was completely naive. I thought, well, I'll write a script, and my dad will show it to someone, and they'll buy it, and that'll be it. Yeah. Well, yeah, it doesn't happen like that. <laughs> and um, first of all, I didn't know the first thing about writing scripts, so I looked at some of my dad's scripts, and I copied them. Uh, I didn't copy them. Copy would I mean I, the style, the, style the layout. layout yeah. I mean now you have script writing software; it does it for you. Yeah. So I knew how to lay it out, but I didn't understand the first thing about pacing or anything mm. like that. 
I wrote a number of specimen scripts, episodes of the bill, just from watching it, with no no character notes or anything to work from. And I so, sent so them you off. you modelled it on the characters in the. Well, bill. I wrote about them, right? You know whether I was in breach of copyright or not, I don't know. But I sent I, I sent the, it to them to the bill. I wasn't going to try and sell it to anybody else. Um, and uh, no one ever replied. And then about six or seven months down the line, by this time, I was on the verge of leaving because I decided I had to. I had to go through, if necessary, a circuitous route. So I had to get into a job where I was actually writing. So I was applying for trainee journalist jobs by right. that, about that time. So at this stage, writing is definitely going to be something you want to do, without question. By this time, I've really, really got keen on the idea. Right. I've enjoyed the experience. I had a thousand stories to tell. Mm. You know, one week alone working in a Manchester as a police officer in uniform all as a detective, you could th- tell three or four different stories that would make people's hair stand on end. So I thought, well, I have, I can't waste... And, of course, you knew other coppers who had even more outlandish experiences. Mm. Some 30-year guys would tell incredible stories. Mm. And I thought, well, I have to, uh, you know, I, I have to find my way into this by a normal route. But anyway, the point was I started to, in effect, try to learn the discipline of, of writing. I finally, got, I finally got a journalist job, but at the same time, I wrote a... Um, uh, a screenplay called Knockoff Job, which was nothing to do with the bill, but it was a police story. Right. And I uh, sent it to them again. They were at Wood Lane at the time in West London. And this time they replied and asked me if I'd go and see them. And I went to see a, one of the uh, script editors there who, first of all, optioned Knockoff Job because he wanted to do... He was he was doing an indip- he was launching an independent production company. An option being... An option like being they owed it. it for a certain period of time. Right. And they will try and find get the development money to to start a book to turn it into an actual ongoing project. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you know, an option. We, we've all got loads of things under option, mm. but at the time, I thought this was a major step forward. Yeah. I mean, all it really means is nobody else can do it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but it's a good thing to have because it means something. You never know; one of them might come off. Yeah. Um, but he also asked me if I wanted to write for the bill, so I said, "Yeah, sure. You know, I'd love to. That's what I'm doing this for." So. But it was over. It was many years before I actually got on. I mean, I, what happened was I was coached. At, I, I then found myself being coached by what was at the time one of the best script departments in British television. Mm-hmm. I mean, the bill was an ongoing TV series. It didn't have seasons. Well, it did, but not that the public were aware of because they overlapped. They ran on and on and on. Mm-hmm. And it, it wasn't a soap opera. Not at first. It was like a every episode was a freestanding drama. Now you think about that. That and sometimes there were three a week. Mm-hmm. That's a phenomenal turnover. I mean, we used to do TV series like Play for Today and all that, which was seen as a hugely prestigious thing. Bill was doing all that anyway, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, And in a separate thing, it was a great vehicle for actors as well. Great vehicle for um, actors. Uh, I used to call it the Bill Count, where you go to the theatre and you'd look at the programme of an actor, and it was, you know... The, if they hadn't been in the bill, that's then right. They oh, that, the same were... applied to writers. <laughs> right. But I, I wrote for the bill. Um, not all of my scripts got through, but a few did. By this time, I was also my day job. I was a journalist working in the northwest. Right. So you'd moved from. The I'd moved. I'd left the police. Now. I'd left the, I, by the nineties. Um, I was worked locally at the, the Wigan Observer, um, the Wigan Evening Post. Uh, I worked on the Rugby League and all this great time if you were a Wigan fan because they had an invincible team at the mm. time. But uh, also, then I went to Manchester and um, wasn't quite as keen. Uh, apart from the fact by then I was really, really wanting to write full-time. Mm. 
With the change in jobs, though, because the police, obviously, the, the hours were crazy in terms of you couldn't have dedicated time to yourself. How did that apply in the from a journalism? Well, the, the only problem with um, the only problem with the, that was that by this time we had young children, and I, the Manchester paper I worked on was a daily, so I would get home sort of sometimes nine half nine, and then I'd have to start writing the bill. My wife Catherine had two young children to deal with, and she was working too. So it's a good job our mums were both relatively young at the time because. It was one of these balancing acts, family life or work. Um, there's no, real, there's no so easy answer. Many people face yeah, it. Yeah, there's they? no Absolutely. easy answer. I mean, it's uh, neither is more virtuous than the other. Mm. They're both important things. Mm. But when I left the bill around 2003, I had a fallout with them. I thought the world would be my oyster, but it wasn't. <laughs> we were moving into a different era of television. All of a sudden, it wasn't just the BBC and ITV anymore. And that meant there was a lot more competition mm. and a lot fewer TV shows were being commissioned by network television in Britain. Because mm. you had uh, the Sky was coming online. All prolific. of that was coming online. And of course, that brought a whole load of American yeah. writers. And I found it, I had, a few le- I had a few lean years, I must admit. Yeah. I mean, I, I had a remarkable experience. I mean, I'd, I'd probably had about two years where I hadn't earned a penny. This was the mid-2000s, and um, my wife Catherine, who was in the financial sector, was also struggling because we had the crash around that time. And I remember thinking, the future looked bleak, frankly. And I was already, I was starting to look at journalist jobs again, which I really didn't want to do, because one thing that had happened since I'd been away is technology had come in. Hmm. So that would mean going, I mean, I would think about going to, uh, you know, going into a, a newsroom, it would be completely different from the newsroom I'd worked in. The newsroom I'd worked in had barely changed in a hundred years. Yeah. Yeah. But this something else. Yeah. And I remember thinking, oh, I don't but I did I did start looking at I started looking. I didn't apply widely. Mm-hmm. But then I was one quite desolate January morning, I remember. I was in Tesco, we were shopping, and it was blizzarding sleet outside. Really added to the mood. And I didn't know what I was gonna do and we were walking, and I gravitated towards the sort of end where all the stationery was and the magazines and the paperbacks. And my eye, my gaze fell on... Everything changed at this moment. I didn't realise it at the time. My eyes fell on the Doctor Who magazine, which was sitting on a rack. Right. And on the cover it said, Call goes out for missing stories. And I thought, I wonder what that is. So I flipped through it, and um, it said that... A company called Big Finish, who are very well respected now, had been starting to do original Doctor Who full cast audio dramas with older Doctors and older companions. Nothing to do at that stage with the new Doctor Who, which was you know on BBC television. Yeah, and that they wanted they were they were working their way through Colin Baker's sixth season. Colin was the sixth Doctor, I think. Not his sixth season; he was the sixth Doctor. And they were famously that season was axed by the BBC. Now, if you're a Doctor Who fan, you'll know all about this. If you if you want, it's simply the case that I think the BBC was getting very cold feet about Doctor Who in the early eighties. Mm. Um, and I found this article fascinating because my dad had written a serial for Colin Baker called Leviathan, which had been part of that season. And oh, so finished. this was a full yes. Doctor Who series. Yes, a full one, and, 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 and uh, it never got made. 
even though it, though a, rehearsal, a rehearsal script was produced and everything, it was it wasn't just a you know a gleam in someone's eye. It was it was almost there, and they wanted that. Big Finish were very keen to get all these stories remade with Colin Baker and Nicola Bryant, who were the original stars, and the full casts. And I thought, well, they can have Leviathan. I wonder why no one's contacted us. Well, it could have been to, to do with the fact my dad had been dead for two years by then, and I thought. <laughs> I wonder, I wonder if I've, we've missed this boat. This could be very good for me because if I, and I'd seen the script, I'd seen it lying around, yeah. but I thought, what the hell is it? First of all, I had to do was I had to get in touch with Big Finish. So I might finally managed to do that, which took some doing. And I don't think they actually believed me when I told them mm. what I had. And they asked me if there was an electronic version of the script. And I thought, well, it's 1984. So no, there isn't. Well, can you scan it and send it to us? I thought, well, I suppose I can do that. The problem I had then was, where was the damn thing? Yeah. I went to my mum's little house. I looked through all her cupboards. We found Coronation Street. We found Hunter's Walk. We found Public Eye. We found the Squirrels. We found uh, Owen MD. All these classic TV shows. Could not find Doctor Who anywhere. And eventually, a, a week passed. And I thought, well, I know I've seen it, but I'm damned if I know where it is now. And I'm just going to have to accept the fact that uh, it's gone. I'm going to have to drop them a line and say, look, I'm sorry, I can't find it. And I, I was really despondent because I thought I'd really felt this was a, a turn of the tide moment for me career-wise because I, was, I wasn't going to let them have it unless I could adapt it. Mm. And um, I was sitting in my office and I was literally, I'd written the email and I turned in my chair one more time to look at the sort of wall of shelves behind me. Scan, and, I, and I just, again, my gaze fell on this buff folder on the bottom shelf covered in dust and I thought all I can say is I don't know what's in that folder <laughs> and I reached down and had a look and it was Doctor Who Leviathan Gosh, I could in, not believe it in plain sight all the time it had been there <laughs> right under my nose and I was just about to cancel the whole thing and I shouted so loudly Kath ran upstairs she thought I'd had an accident I said I found it I found it there were only like three pages missing Gosh. And um, so I, I quickly scanned it and rattled it off to them. And they immediately came back, said they loved it. And yes, they, I had a track record, so they were going to trust me to do it, but it had mm. to be done all in the next two weeks because they were right at the end of the schedule. So I just wrote the hell out of it. And um, it's, it seemed to be a relatively brief time before we were actually in the studio down at Labrook Grove. Mm. And I met... Um, Colin Baker, who had known my dad from The Brothers. Dad wrote The Brothers in the early 70s, which was his big break into television. Oh, was it? Right. right. And yeah. Colin Baker was a most uh, delightful guy and very fond memories of The Brothers and my dad. And we went for a drink afterwards and to reminisce. And I, I always say that was the best day at work I ever spent. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. Uh, great fun, great fun. Anyway, the thing was, everything seemed to change then because I got regular work for Big Finish. Mm. And at the same time, my agent was saying, look, why don't you write a cop novel? And I was like, ah, I don't know what I've done that. It's in the past. It's gone. I want to do science fiction. I want to do horror. I want to do mm. fantasy. But my agent kept saying, look, you know, it's a struggle. Outside the Doctor Who, there's not a lot being sold. Cop novels are out there. People writing cop novels. And the, the big mm. issue I had was I didn't want to do cosy crime. Mm. I found British crime very, very village greeny. And listen, that's got a market. One yeah. of the biggest markets on earth. I'm not knocking it, but it wasn't. It wasn't for me. Mm -hmm. And he said, "Well, go away and think, and think hard about what you want to do." And I, at the time, there were two TV shows on. 
the shield and the wire, which were like real police shows. Mm. And I th- and I remember thinking, I want to do that. If I'm going to do it, it's got to be like that. So I wrote the first heck book, Stalkers, which was very much of that sort of school of yeah. a cop that would stop at nothing to clear the streets. Yes. And um, and having just finished reading that first, all right, book, yeah. Well, it I'll, became. We'll talk about that. In right. A bit. Well, it became. It was a bestseller. So. The rest is history, as they say. (laughs) Can I just look at, just to go back to that journey then. So some of my listeners now listening to this will go, okay, so you've done that leap and you've been through various things. What was the biggest challenge in all that time from you going from that full-time work to having that leap of faith? Obviously the the script, the Doctor Who script's been a driver behind that, but how did you cope with that mentally? Well, the the leap of faith is a good phrase to use because there comes a time in every person who wants to write want to write's career when they have to leave the day job and branch out on their own mm. now i i was spared that leap of faith that or rather that leap into the darkness because i was made redundant it wasn't my choice right. and at the time my wife uh, i mean i hadn't been there long enough to get any kind of payout i, I got a pay but it wasn't much mm. Um, and my wife supported me because she knew this was really what I wanted to do. I mean, uh, so the biggest moment you all, we all face, I mean, you can you can do both at the same time, but it becomes a killing workload. And, and one will always suffer at the expense of the other. Mm. And I became, the more I was throwing myself into writing, the more I was conscious that I wasn't perhaps doing my best job during the day, my best work during the day. Right. So, I mean, don't get me wrong, you know, some of the bosses I've had, I wouldn't have cared less about that. But there were others who I did yeah. want to do a good job There's for. There's a lot of people resonating with that, I'm yeah, sure. And I, but I, but there, were, there were some people who were good, and yeah. I felt bad that I felt that I was not really fulfilling my, you know, what they required of me. I mean, don't get me wrong, I wasn't doing slack work, mm. but the enthusiasm wasn't there. Yeah. So it was a moment of truth, really, that yeah, to, to yeah. drove that. I mean, yeah. but you always have to... The, the, the problem you, you, you have, I suppose, with any craft, If I mean, I guess it's particularly anything in the arts, mm-hmm. there's only so much you can learn and be taught. If you haven't got what it takes, I'm not sure what else you can do about that. Mm-hmm. There are some people who... I mean, for example, I could never create a painting. If I tried, it would look like something done from a, a, in a junior school. You know... I would love to be able to paint, yeah. but there's no point in even trying because I've, I mean, I, well, it, that's put it this way: it will be a very, very, very long road with probably almost no returns. Yeah. So you have to accept that possibility that you might not ever be able to do it. Mm. And people could go on creative writing courses and all that, but there are certain things that you cannot. Some people are good at some things and not so good at others. Mm. Do you know what I mean? You Absolutely. sometimes have to accept that. Yeah. But I do think, though, I do think that um, there's a lot you can learn. But you're always, you're always going to be taking a risk. If you're packing your day job in, you're always going to be taking a risk that your sales might never, ever justify such a drastic move. Mm. That's the moment of mental torment that we all have to go through. In the second part of my interview with Paul, which you can hear in the next episode, we go on to discuss the writing process in detail and how to manage writing in various styles and genres, amongst other topics. Despite having a father who is recognised as one of the most successful TV scriptwriters in the last 50 years, he initially chose to go down a completely different career path. 
That said, I bet you, like me, can think of people who have purposely set out to do something completely different to their parents. It does seem that the lore of the Granada TV experience was obviously deep-rooted in him from a very early age, though, and has undoubtedly helped inspire his motivation and creativity. It was also good to learn that, like many of us, he had a tough balancing act to do between the day job, pursuing a creative passion, and juggling all of that with family life. I wonder how many of you listening right now are us at that early stage. If so, do make sure that you listen to part two, in which you'll be able to learn how to hone your creative skills, and hopefully, like Paul, be able to do this as a full-time profession, should you wish to do so. If you're just looking for ideas on how to develop your craft, then the next part is also essential listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please follow the series wherever you get your pods and do review the back catalogue if you're new to the series. You can leave feedback about the episode through social media by searching for Half Hour Mentor or via the email link in the show notes. I'd love to know what you think of these episodes, so please do get in touch. Thanks very much for listening and until next time, bye for now. Thank you.